in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. All right, this is an exciting day because we are finishing the St. Paul in St. Paul series. Ideally, we would have had another three, four, five weeks to go through it, but time constraints are time constraints. And so I wanted to finish out his series. Feel free to go on the podcast. I think we have all of the episodes accounted for. So if you missed any weeks, um, and I know all of you attend, you know, eight or nine weeks straight and solid, unbroken. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. If you've missed any weeks and you want to hear them, uh, you can find them on the podcast. And so my whole goal with this series has been treating Paul as a human being and getting to know him a bit better as a person with emotions, with heartbreak, with uh, even love lost, so that we can then spend the rest of our days reading Paul as a, a human being and not some brain on a stick, not some systematic theologian, but as a person, like we often will read the rest of the, the writers in the New Testament. So today, we come to the end of his story. And just like we kind of breeze through his three missionary journeys, we do have to breeze through the last three years, or I guess five years or so, of his life. So toward the end of Paul's ministry, there is a threat on his life. He's back in Jerusalem, and this threat is so serious on his life. And at the same time, he is a Roman citizen. So he's got this threat against his life that these Jewish leaders have taken a vow, uh, like a hunger vow, to not eat until Paul is assassinated. Uh, And so he finds this out. And as a Roman citizen, he appeals to Rome for, or to the local rulers for protection. And so Rome, again, there's very few people in Rome are actually citizens, maybe one-tenth of the population. It's a very honorable thing to have. So Rome surrounds him with something like 200 soldiers. You can read this in the latter third of Acts. There's a threat on his life. They don't just surround him with five or 10. They surround him with 200 soldiers because they know that this guy is a very big deal and there's a very large number of people who are after him. So imagine if there was a threat on your life and you called the St. Paul Police Department. Maybe they'd send a, you know, they'd send a black and white outside your house, right? They'd send a, just a regular car, maybe two officers total. He gets 200 soldiers who surround him and then walk him to Caesarea, uh, a few hours walk or a few days walk away. But he ends up getting caught in limbo at Caesarea. So he's appealing for final judgment on his case You know, is he a rioter? Is he disrupting the peace? Is he a totally honorable person? Is it just the Jews who are against him? Is it the Romans? There's all these confusing threads. And he appeals to the the governor at Caesarea. But there's a kind of limbo and a changeover, uh, like a change in leadership. So he ends up sitting there in custody for two years. Now, it's kind of a strange custody. It's by his own choice that he's choosing to go to Rome. So he's not quite a prisoner, but he's something like it. He's not, he's not, Uh, been charged with a crime, it's his own choice to go to Rome and appeal to the emperor. And so it's this strange thing as you follow him. Remember, he's kind of a prisoner. He's kind of in custody and in chains, but he's also an innocent man still, and they don't treat him like a criminal, even though he is under their protection. So it's it's a weird dynamic. So don't think of him quite as a prisoner, but he is under lock and key, so to speak. He is um, not allowed to leave. Uh, but he also has a lot of freedom. So he is leading and teaching and helping the church there at Caesarea, but he's also not allowed to leave that town. This, by the way, it's from Caesarea, this city. If you remember back to the first, first or second sermon in this series, we talk about how the early church remembered and recorded that Paul was born into slavery. And the reason we have that story, that he was born into slavery, 
is from the historians in Caesarea writing this down a few generations later. So it's likely that this story, though he would have told it other places, it was especially remembered from his time here. He spent two years in Caesarea helping the church, kind of in this weird limbo, kind of under custody, kind of not under house arrest. And this is when this story would have especially been expounded and explained where they remembered it. And then a few generations later, Origen records it. So finally, after two years of this weird limbo, the Roman governor changes, and the new guy, within just days of being appointed, sends him right away to Rome. Um, so I think you guys have experienced this, right, where you're de dealing with some sort of bureaucratic mess, and you're working with someone who's maybe not super competent and doesn't know exactly what they're doing, and you're just like a hamster, just spinning the wheels. And all of a sudden, you, start, you reach out to somebody else, and like the whole thing just gets cleared up in like 24 hours or, or a week. That's what seems to be happening here. Paul is caught up in this limbo, then the Roman governor changes, or the Roman authority changes, and the new guy says, wow, you should have been in Rome two years ago. You know, you appealed to the emperor, you should have been gone. What are you still doing here? So even though it's too late in the season for sailing the Mediterranean safely, he puts him and a whole contingent of people on a boat to go receive immediate judgment in Rome on this case. And so, it, like I said, it's too late in the season uh, and most people never sailed on the Mediterranean during this time. But just very recently, before this time, because of the sort of greedy need to get more and more you know, money and trade and grain and stuff into Rome, there were some sailors, some you know, ship captains who were taking the risk and sailing in the wintertime. But the storms and the hurricanes and all this stuff would pick up like crazy in this period. And so most people never sailed then. But Paul doesn't exactly have a say. And so... The, the Roman governor says, you're on your way. Now, Paul, he's not a professional sailor, but he has spent a lot of his life on boats. And he, uh, if you remember, he talks about how many times he received beatings and lashings and shipwrecks. So he has not only spent a lot of time on ships, but he has also gone down uh, in a lot of ships. Um, and so he, he tends to know what works and what doesn't. Uh, so they take Paul and his companions on this ship, and again, they're respected and given a lot of freedom. They are there by choice, right? Though they're kind of in custody, they're not trying to escape. They're not like the prisoners, the other prisoners who are on the ship. They're choosing to go there, and so they're given a, a fairly decent, you know, leash and, and respect. And Paul, it's clear, because of all these people who are coming with him, it's clear that Paul is a big deal. Now, what's really funny about Paul, and I'm getting some of this material from that N.T. Wright biography I've told you guys about, uh, What's funny is we know from the story that people loved Paul so much, but there's also points in Paul's story where you think, man, that guy can be kind of annoying, right? He can kind of get on people's nerves, and you see the stuff he says, and you think, should you really be saying that right now? Um, and so uh, there's all these um, funny moments where Paul just sticks his neck out, which, which really helps to save the church, but it also can be kind of annoying. And we in the modern world think, really, are you that bold and brazen all the time? Uh, and so you can see how people both truly love him, but also, you know, if Paul is your enemy, how you could be really annoyed with him. So listen to this. Here Paul is a, uh, he's sort of in custody with this boat, and he's on a boat full of prisoners, and they're on their way to Rome, but it's too late in the season, it's not safe. And Paul says, to the rulers of the ship, the sort of the, the captain and whatnot. He says, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot 
and the owner of the ship. So Paul is basically saying, guys, this is a big mistake. We should wait out the winter. But of course, the ship wants to you know, bring their cargo to Rome and, and make their money. Uh, but Paul was right. They ended up on the way getting caught in a two-week storm. And it was so bad that they ended up having to throw all the luggage, all the cargo, all the grain overboard, including all the anchors and things like that, um, or all of the gear on the ship. And it said that uh, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So this is a really bad, almost like hurricane-level storm that lasted two weeks. The book of Acts says, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should, <laughs> men, you should have taken my advice not to sail to Crete. Then you, would have been, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. Which is just, again, this hilarious moment. Like, really? Like, you've been in this storm for two weeks. Everyone's terrified. All the cargo, all the profit is gone off the side of the ship. And Paul stands up and says, I told you so. <laughs> and it's just like, really? Like, <laughs> was that the wisest thing you could have said? at the moment. Um, but he says, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So here, Paul has gotten a prophecy, and the prophecy says from God, from an angel, no one's going to be harmed. The boat is going to be lost. All the money will be lost. You will run aground on some island, but everyone's going to live. So he stands up, says, I told you so, but don't worry. Everyone's going to be saved. Everyone's going to be safe, uh, but we will lose the boat. And it seems actually that uh, this actually did really work. That I told you so didn't quite smack uh, them like it would us. They, they understood he actually was right, but then this prophecy greatly comforted them. And so they decided to dip into the food stores, and they all ate and sort of were feeling a little bit better. And uh, they realized in the middle of the night, the sailors realized that they, they had some sense. You know, sailors know what they're doing, and they had some sense based on either sound or something that they were getting close to shore. So they started taking soundings. I didn't know that they could do this in the ancient world, but they started taking soundings, you know, where you, I don't know, you put something, I don't know exactly how you do this, but it's like an ancient version of sonar, I think. And they figured out that they were 120 feet off the bed of the ocean. And then they did it a little bit later, and they were 90 feet. So they realized they're coming real quick, up to shore, but it's the middle of the night. They don't have artificial light that can, you know, cast out like we do today. So they're terrified because they don't know if they're coming into some sort of cliff or rock face or a reef or whatever. So they take all four anchors and they just launch them off the side of the boat to try to slow the thing down. It's been just floating for days because they, they, they lost all their gear. They've just been wandering in the, in the sea and they don't know where they're going and they have no idea where they are so they toss the anchors over the side, hoping that these anchors will slow them down enough so the boat doesn't just basically completely crush to pieces on the rocks that might be ahead. Uh, and they prayed for daybreak. Uh, at that moment, this is funny, uh, Paul caught sailors pretending to be doing something helpful with the anchors in the back, but really what they were trying to do was lower the lifeboat and escape. So the sailors were trying to get out of dodge and, and lower the small lifeboat so they could paddle away into safety. But again... Paul always is taking charge, and he quashed that. He sort of told the leader what was going on and said, listen, if they get out of here, 
the, the sort of the prophecy is off, right? But if we all stay on the boat, we will all make it and all be okay. Um, so the soldiers were worried at that point uh, that the prisoners, some of the prisoners, if they hit rocks and, you know, kind of broke up, that some would die, but then some would escape. Um, and so they were about to kill them all. But again, even though Paul is this kind of annoying figure, the centurion, the, the head of this voyage, liked Paul and his companions and decided on their account to spare the whole lot. They weren't going to kill all of these prisoners, probably a lot of bad men on that boat, and they decided to spare everyone. Finally, as day started to break, they saw land ahead, and they hit a kind of sandbar uh, or reef, some call it, and the ship basically got lodged and stuck in this sandbar, and then the waves just kept pounding it from the storm behind, and the ship broke apart. So everyone either swam or floated on planks all the way to the shore, and they were at Malta. Has anyone here ever visited Malta as a tourist? Anyone? Malta? It's like a great vacation spot now off of Italy. Um, so uh, they go to Malta. It's the middle of the winter, and all the locals, you know, welcome them. Paul starts miraculously healing people. People start bringing their sick to Paul, and then they think he's this God. This keeps happening to Paul, right, that God has given them, him the ability at times to heal people. Uh, so the whole island is bringing people to, to Paul, and they think he's a God, and of course he corrects them and, and tells them what, what's really going on. And somehow then, these 250 or 300 people are able to be cared for by these islanders, probably largely because of the miraculous works that Paul is doing. Then once it's safe enough in the spring, then they sail toward Rome. And they made, a different, they made some stops along the way. So again, we're kind of breezing through his last couple years here. It says, the next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached Puteoli. There, listen to this, there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. So Puteoli is basically right next door to Pompeii, where they would have the great, you know, Vesuvius disaster, and the whole city would be covered in ash and essentially frozen in time. Uh, and at Puteoli, it says they ran into believers there. We're talking in the year 60 AD. There were already Christians in a kind of minor town in Italy, not Rome, just some minor town, which gives us a sense of just how quickly Christianity was spreading, that they were in a kind of second or third-rate town, and there were Christians there who welcomed them in. This is only 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus that you have Christians, you know, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem in a minor town, which shows it's really growing quickly. Um, that's close to Pompeii. And what's really cool is if you look into, if you go to Pompeii and visit the, the wreckage there, uh, there's, we already know that there were a lot of Christians there in Christian community. We have uh, hard evidence of people destroying their pagan symbols in their home. You can see them scratched out or plastered over and then crosses put on top of them within 30 years of Jesus's death and resurrection. And these kind of second-rate cities. It's not Rome. It's not Ephesus. This is, you know, Pompeii. This is Naples, uh, where you get, you know, Neapolitan pizza from, right? This is, this is important that this place gets sanctified, right? This is where we get our great pizza from. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That's not in my notes. Um, all right. <laughs> yeah, so visit Pompeii sometime and see the Christian ruins and symbols there, frozen in time from whatever year that was that that happened. Uh, so then they go farther. It says, this is, this is one of my favorite passages in Acts. It says, The brothers and sisters there at Rome had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Uh, when I read, they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns, it just makes me think of like, 
did J.R.R. Tolkien write this line? Like, they traveled as far as the three taverns to meet us. I just get sent into, like, Hobbit land because uh, it sounds so non-biblical. It sounds so, like, uh, Lord of the Ringsy all of a sudden. Uh, but the reason I love this is that Paul has written the letter to the Romans a few years before this. Paul had not been to Rome ever in his life at this point, as far as we know, but he had heard about what was going on in Rome, and he wrote his letter to them. Now, as much as you guys know, I am a fan of the letter to the Hebrews, and I think it doesn't get its fair shake as possibly the the most theologically rich letter in the New Testament. It is true, without a doubt, that Romans is Paul's magnum opus, and that it is the most influential book in the New Testament, probably, at least for Western history's sake. The book of, the, the, the letter to the Romans is the most influential single book, probably, in the New Testament. Um, it's just, yeah, many of our great upheavals in Western society have come on the heels of reinterpreting that book. You know, when, when Luther starts the Reformation or when Karl Barth uh, basically destroys liberal theologians uh, with, by taking an ax to the roots of their tree, it's, it's the book of Romans that they're reading to do all this work. It's not Matthew, it's not John. So Paul had written Romans, and I don't know if he quite knew how much of a magnum opus it was, but we see here in this, we see this great encouragement to Paul that all throughout the time that he's doing his travels and his work, he is recognized as an apostle. But as you guys know from my preaching and walking through these stories, often he's kind of treated as a second-rate apostle to Apollos, right? Or to Peter or James or John. And people respect his letters. They read them yearly. I think there was respect for them. He's definitely recognized as a legit apostle. But he wasn't seen yet as maybe the most influential apostle in the early church. But here we have a clue that that's starting to change because they're 40 miles. So here he's on his way to Rome and somehow word gets out. There's messengers going back and forth. Word gets out that Paul is on his way to Rome and a ton of Christians from Rome walk 40 miles south just to intercept him on the way, right? This is the same guy that's not getting this kind of attention five or six years earlier. People love him, they cherish him, but people are not walking 40 miles to meet him outside of the border of their city. But it's almost, you get this sense that this church, that one of the largest churches, or many churches in Rome, had been reading this letter, studying this letter, and they truly recognized something different. This is maybe the moment in the early church when people understood that Paul was not like the other apostles. Now, it's clear now he was more influential than all the others combined. And you get the sense that Rome is starting to realize this upon reading his letter. They, They think, this guy is different, this is special, and this is not just a letter from a leader. At some point... There were a lot of letters going back and forth. Most of them are lost. But at some point, the early church starts to realize some of these letters are forming a kind of scripture, right? That like, for them, the Bible was the Old Testament. The letters they were getting were just letters from leaders and the Bible was the Old Testament. But it's around this point that you see them start to care so much about this letter from a guy they'd never met. But they were reading this letter, studying it and wanting to meet its author so, so clearly that you get the sense that this is the shift in his life when his own writings, his own teaching starts to be taken as a kind of scripture from a living author still, right? That this is something new is happening, something new happened in Jesus, but now we're actually getting official teaching uh, and we wanna go meet this apostle. So this is that why it's one of my favorites, not just the three taverns bit, but because it's the only indication we have during Paul's life that he was considered this sort of big deal that we consider him, that it was, he was starting to get hints at the fact that his ministry was paying off and the early church was starting to see him 
as we see him now. So uh, he arrives in Rome and he preaches one last time, a few final lines in Acts. And then this is, man, a mystery for the ages. These are the last lines in Acts. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own, in Rome, in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's the end. <laughs> Have you ever read a, read a biography of someone in which they don't talk about how they died? This is the great mystery about the book of Acts is that it does not describe to us how Paul died. Uh, we have no uh, smoking gun on how he died. We have good indications from tradition and the early church. But some people think it's that, some scholars have asked in the last hundred years, why was the book of Luke, or sorry, the book of Acts written? And there's actually a really good case that the book of Acts was written for Paul's defense in Rome that when he's going to present his case before all the leaders in Rome, that to give the full context, this whole story was written up for this reason. I'm not necessarily telling you that's my take, but it's not a controversial one. And a lot of scholars of the book of Luke and Acts think that's why Acts was written. Luke was to give an account of Jesus's life and Acts was an account before the Roman rulers as to how Paul had been carrying himself. Um, and that's why it may have been written before Paul was killed. And that's why we have no note on his death that it was written before Paul died by his companion, Luke. We actually, this is really cool. We actually know more about Paul's specific, specific sort of comings and goings than any other apostle. And we know what house he stayed at. You can go and see it in Rome. So it says for two whole years, he stayed there in his own rented house. We know where that is. That's, that's, like, that's not just some weird, like, mystical, like, tour guide station that's made up later. We actually know where he stayed, and you can visit that if you go to Rome. So what about his death? How did Paul die? So there are a few different theories on this. The first one's probably the most likely. So some of you may have heard this, that there was a great fire in Rome in A.D. 64, um, if you go to Rome today, you'll think the whole city back then was made out of like stone and granite and all this cool stuff. Most of the city was actually wood and it was extremely tightly packed together and everyone lived in these four or five story walk-ups. But wood uh, either burns or it rots. And so we don't have any record of what that part of the city looked like. We only have the great monuments that were made out of stone that have survived. But the city then looked a lot like uh, some, some other kind of tightly packed ancient cities that were just wood. Um, because it was so tightly packed and ventilation and fire codes were not what they are today, uh, a small fire started under the circus, the Circus Maximus, and it spread basically to the whole city. The only thing that was able to stop the fire was the river. Just so happens that all of the Jews and the Christians lived on the other side of the river. They were kind of this strange people who had their strange you know, food laws, and they were these, you know, uh, emancipated slaves. They kind of came late to the game into Rome. So everyone else got to live in the city, and the Jews and the Christians were on the other side of the river. So the entire city just completely scorched earth, burns down, except for the great palaces made out of stone, but everyone else loses their home, except for the Christians and Jews and a few other, like, minorities on the outside, the other side of the river. So Nero, the emperor at the time, needs someone to blame because a lot of people were blaming him. Well, it's kind of an easy target when you've got all these strange foreigners who worship only one god instead of many. They seem kind of like these weird atheists who are kind of opting out of like Roman culture. 
And guess what? Their settlements are perfectly well taken care of and everyone's just fine. They have all their belongings, whereas all of us are sitting here in the ashes. And you can imagine they were an easy target to blame. And so that was one of the first great persecutions of the early Christian church. And people knew about this, right? If we can find ruins in Pompeii and all these other places, it was well known what was happening uh, with this sort of messianic sect within Judaism. So uh, the first theory, and this is what a lot of the early church historians said, is that a lot of the Christians were rounded up. This is when they started being fed to wild animals in the Colosseum and things like this. Uh, And at this time, Paul and Peter were killed, likely on the same day. Uh, Peter was crucified like Jesus, and tradition has it that because he, you know, he was crucified because he wasn't a, a citizen, he was given this awful punishment, but that he requested in order to not even share in the manner of Jesus's death, Peter requested to be crucified upside down, uh, which his executioners thought was sort of quirky and strange enough, and they actually said, okay. Um, and so Peter would have been crucified upside down, but Paul, because he was a citizen, was given a much more respectful execution and that he was uh, beheaded by the sword, which would be a much more instantaneous thing. Um, One of the great mysteries, well, I'll I'll talk about other theories of his death in a second, but one of the great mysteries is, the great questions over Paul's life is, did he make it to Spain? If you guys know, one of his driving motivations for going to Rome was to visit the churches there, but then to be sent on to what they called the ends of the earth, which was basically Spain and Portugal uh, to them. Uh, you guys laughing here. Yeah. And to them, they thought it was the ends of the earth. It's as far as west as you can go in Europe, at least. Um, and so there, there's actually not knockout evidence, but there's decent evidence from the early church that he did make it to Spain. So he, again, was there under house arrest. Uh, it was his own choosing. So he could come and go. He had one guard who was kind of protecting him more than imprisoning him. He was protecting him from these uh, plots of, uh, of being assassinated. And there is a pretty strong tradition from the early church that he did make it all the way to the west, to the ends of the earth. And uh, there is an ancient uh, pagan temple in uh, Tarragona. Is that saying that right? Tarragona? That was uh, um, converted to a Christian chapel very, very early, just outside of Barcelona. And that was sort of the biggest leading, highest pagan temple that when you were miles out at sea, it was famous that there's this temple at the ends of the earth that's so high you can see it from miles out at sea. And it's kind of understood that if Paul were to have made it to Spain, he would certainly want to go to that city to convert the city with the largest, you know, idols temple. And the Spaniards there have pretty decent uh, oral history and memory that Paul did make it there. So we don't know for sure, but uh, it seems like It's maybe 50-50, but it's fun to think that maybe he made it there during his two years of house arrest. Uh, Here's my favorite theory on his death, and we don't have as much evidence for it, but it's definitely my my favorite, is that Nero's mistress or wife uh, was a Jew, and we know that some of his other people in his cohort were Jews. And of course, Christianity was spreading most quickly among Jews in the early church And at one point, you know, Nero is this vicious man who murders and kills a lot of the people that are close to him. And at one point, it's said that uh, he he executes one of his own uh, women or concubines that are close to him because she became a believer in foreign divinities. Now, the mystery for the ages is what exactly is that? But a believer in foreign divinities. And Paul winks at us through the letter to the Philippians at the end, he signs off. He says, 
all God's people here send you greetings. This is while he's in prison in Rome under the palace. He's like right under where the, the emperor lives. And he says, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. <laughs> Everyone sends you greetings, especially those in Caesar's household, right above my dungeon, <laughs> right above my you know, prison or whatever. And so we can't know for sure but we do have really good evidence that a lot of the servants, slaves, uh, people of means who had um, you know, tombs and stuff carved to their own honor, a lot of the people in Caesar's circles were becoming Christians at this time already, which there weren't actually that many Christians in Rome, but it seems like in Caesar's household, there were a ton from the slaves all the way up to some of his sort of uh, the women in kind of his, his orbit. Uh, and we can't know this for sure, but some historians have speculated that if he kills his wife for converting or kills his you know, mistress for converting to this sort of strange Eastern religion of you know, foreign divinities, that would be probably Christianity or Judaism, uh, that it's very likely that if he was so angry as to do that, he might have done the same thing to the Christians that were under his palace and that he might have taken Paul and Peter the same day and killed them. That's my favorite thing. That I, I think that would be a fun story rather than this fire and someone needs to be scapegoated. Okay, so that's his story. That's his, that's his biography. That's how he either kind of comes to an end or, or the end of his life. And what, what he accomplished, though, is what I want to focus on, is that he is probably the most influential movement maker in the history of the human race, uh, besides Jesus himself, uh, and that you know, the Holy Spirit was with him, and that he did more than all of the other disciples combined to essentially create the church as we know it. That's Gentile, Jew, across many races and social classes. That bringing of um, that Jewish prophetic message of that the poor will be lifted up and the rich will be humbled, that there will be equality between races and classes, that was a first in human history. And that hope and beauty that comes along with the gospel, that joy, uh, it's just, you can, you can almost see it. So I was reading this article once about someone who had spent their whole life in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And this is really interesting. Or I guess it was maybe um, the middle belt, right? Where sub-Saharan Africa meets northern Africa. That's more Muslim. And this man writing was not a Christian, but he said, you can always tell if you're in a Muslim or a Christian village within just seconds because there's a kind of joy. You can taste it. When you come into a Christian village, people look at you in the eye and they smile at you. And you, there's a kind of joy, a kind of beauty in life and I think about that sometimes. We have a, uh, an Ethiopian Orthodox church. So it's uh, Ethiopian Christians uh, who worship just down the street from where we live. And so often there'll be these groups of women walking by, sometimes men too, but a lot of times the women will walk by. Uh, and right away, it's a major difference. They, they actually dress a lot like Muslims in that they come from you know, uh, Ethiopia and Egypt. So there's a lot of just kind of similarities in how they've dressed given it's a Muslim-majority country, you kind of have to play a certain game. But they're dressed in white rather than dressed in black. And if that alone doesn't tell you something about the difference between Christianity and Islam, that these women are dressed in white instead of black, um, that alone tells you a lot. And I'd love to see what G.K. Chesterton would do with a description like that. But the other day, we set out, as we're getting ready to move, we set out uh, one of the kids' beds that we no longer need. We set it out on the side of the road. And I was playing with the kids in the yard and some of these women came up. And again, just the way they're dressed, even though they're in white, I just still am used to respecting Muslim women and, and not wanting to put them in a strange spot. So I saw these women come up from a distance and look at this bed. 
And I just kind of kept my distance. I pretended kind of to not notice them. Meanwhile, my kids are just staring at them the whole time, right? But I was pretending not to notice them. Uh, and I was kind of forgetting for a moment that they go to this Christian church down the way. I just saw that, you know, the, the veils and everything or the headdresses, and I thought, I'll give them a little space. And all of a sudden, in this moment, they both just turned to me. Uh, you know, they're kind of, you, you could tell that they liked what they were seeing. And then they sort of decided, we want to take this bed. And they were calling the, you know, the men that they knew to come pick it up or something. And all of a sudden, they turned to me and both just like wide smiles, just started waving. And like, thank you, you know, we're going to come get this. Thank you, you know, just waving. And I know this is kind of silly, but you don't get that from Muslim women, right? That there's this kind of shame and, you know, you keep your eyes down and you don't look at people because like here I am from like a power perspective. I'm like a, you know, fifth generation American, you know, my skin color, I'm a man. You, you wouldn't get that. But here are these women, they're, they're, as Christians, there's this kind of beautiful searing equality and joy that permeates them, right? Even though, you know, we don't live in a perfect world, but there's this kind of joy, this curiosity, this blistering equality that they can look up and just smile and like be on equal terms, if that makes sense. We take our kids to um, these like public soccer games sometimes, and it'll be the same thing. I'll be taking Jude, our two-year-old, to the playground to kind of keep him busy while the older kids play soccer. And some of these women will kind of be around and I'll just assume, again, like, don't look at them, don't, like, don't make them feel uncomfortable, don't ask them questions. And then, like, they come up to you and are just asking questions and being nice and chatting. And you're like, oh, right, like, you can talk to me because you're a Christian, right? You don't have to just hide your face and, and, and bury yourself. It's these little things that Paul brought to the entire world. Like, we don't quite get, but, like, that binary of, like, you're uh, a lower member of society, you're shamed, you can't look that changes remarkably under the gospel, that Jews, Gentiles, white and black, female, male, slave and free, were all of a sudden all in a moment equal in God's image, and that God himself has come down to do this. God himself has come down to make us equal, to put on flesh, walk among us, that he went before us in death, he went before us on the cross, and he defeated death, he defeated the fall, he defeated the curse of sin and death because we could not. And then he rose again and he's made us all equal, all the same. And that one, just that one thing, not to mention all the other 50 things that Paul did, but that one thing absolutely turned the world upside down, that the slave girl, the disabled kid had just as much value as the wealthy Roman senator. It was just devastating to the world at that time. As we know, of course, Jesus, who Paul worshiped, who we worship rose again to new life and defeated forever the curse of death. And he invites us and the whole world to follow him in that, in baptism. That's what we're doing next week, that we follow him into death by being buried under the water, and that we follow him into new life, into his righteousness, his perfection, by being raised again, not fully just us, but with Christ sort of put on us as a garment, that all of us who are in him are covered by his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, somebody said once that uh, today we call our sons Paul and we call our dogs Nero. Uh, and I think that's one of the greatest ways of summing up who, you know, Nero had all the power and Paul was killed by him, but today we call our sons Paul and we call our dogs Nero. So whatever happened, whatever happened with Paul, we don't know exactly how he died, even though he probably was beheaded at the same time as Peter was crucified. It's probably that fire. But whatever happened afterward, so this is fascinating, guys. I don't know if you know this. There's this little secret. If you read a biography on Paul, you almost won't see this because it's so new 
that the biographers haven't had time to, or, or, the, or their books were published before this came out. So tradition held that his body was collected by the early followers of Christ and that he was brought uh, out on the Western way. Uh, there's a way, uh, I forget what it's called in, in Latin, but there's a Western way. If you go to Rome, you can visit it. And that he was buried a few miles outside of Rome on this Western way. And now they have built, they've first built a chapel and then a larger one and then a larger one. Now it's this huge cathedral or huge basilica or something outside of Rome. And they call it St. Paul's Outside the Walls. So if you ever go there, you hear St. Paul's Outside the Walls. This is, tradition had it, where he was buried and that they built this chapel and then now this large church that you can see. But of course, you know, skeptical archaeologists were like, well, you know, who knows if he's buried there. You know, tradition said he was buried, but there was this season of 100 years where people like to say that, well, maybe tradition's wrong or whatever. Um, And just in 2009, I think it was, they were excavating under this church. And I kid you not, you can Google this, you can find it. They were excavating under this church, being very careful not to mess anything up, and they found a tomb that said, Paulos Apostolos Mart in Latin, which means Paul, an apostle, martyr. That's all it said. Um, and now we knew from tradition that they built this chapel, this church on top of Paul's tomb. So we'd expect to have some sort of tomb, some sort of grave in there that said Paul. So they were looking for this. They found it. And then, of course, there were some skeptics that were like, well, you know, it's probably not him. Someone probably added that in a thousand years later just to, whatever, make some show of it or whatever. Uh, but here's what no hacker or no fake could have ever done. You cannot mess with radiocarbon dating for the age of bones. And no one would have known that you could do that until the last 50 years or so. And so there's a body inside this grave. And they sent little probes in just through like a a crack in the cement or whatever, the, the rock or whatever. And they grabbed just a pinch of bone fragment and they dated it. And it comes from the first century AD. So... Like I said, we know more about Paul than we know about anyone. We know where he lived in Rome, and we even have his actual remains. We have his grave, his tomb, we have his bones inside this thing. That they, didn't, you know, they didn't bury some random other guy from the first century, right? They built a chapel on top of what they remembered to be Paul's remains, and that's actually him in there. And so that is the, uh, that's what happened to this Paul, this apostle, this martyr for the faith. And that concludes our series on Paul. Again, more of a, almost a lecture series than a classic sermons, but I hope that then you can take this through the rest of your life and, and connect more with Paul and his writings and feel like he's more of a human being rather than just a thinker, that he is a person that you could know and love and sometimes be a little annoyed with. Uh, with that, I'll, I'll close in prayer and I welcome you guys to join us downstairs. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, uh, for this apostle, this martyr who went around the world sharing your good news with the whole world. Uh, We just pray that we would read him, that we would learn from the lessons that you gave the church through him, and that you would wash over our hearts through the scripture that you have given us, much of it, which comes through his hand. Uh, We lift this up and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.